2: Hi, I'm Rachel Cunliffe.
3: And I'm Rachel MF, And I'm Freddie Hayward.
2: And on today's New Statesman podcast, we're asking, why is Brexit back? And then in today's You Ask Us, should we have boycotted the World Cup in Qatar? So we'll start with the big news of the week, which is very much a sense of déjà vu, because Brexit is back. It's feeling very 2016 or 2017 or... 2018 or 2019, or basically any of the years in the Brexit wars, because we had a headline in the Sunday Times saying that Rishi Sunak was going to pursue Swiss-style arrangements with with the EU, so closer EU ties, which, I mean, I've never seen government denials so quick and so strong, but that story is still playing out three, four, five days later Rachel, let's start with you. What's going on here? Why is Brexit back? Didn't we do all this in 2019?
4: I think it's sort of, it comes down, I guess, to some of the labour shortages and government probably feeling pressure to do something about it because we haven't had growth for so many years now. And so this, this headline appeared in the Sunday Times and it's it's notable that the, the journalist behind it, Caroline Wheeler, really came out to defend it after the government tried to knock it down on Sunday. And, and Jeremy Hunt's been out since saying, oh, I, I didn't brief it. Nobody from the Treasury briefed it, but that she's standing by it so strongly suggests that somebody close to government has has told them the story and she's absolutely going to stand by it. The Swiss style deal would be like getting access to the single market via a number of bilateral trade agreements but the reaction from the usual suspect on the Conservative Party right put paid to that pretty much immediately. And soon it's come out to say, no, absolutely, this will not be happening under my leadership, which sort of says a lot about the position he's in and how carefully balanced his leadership is, really.
2: It's, it's really interesting because I'm old enough to remember the original Brexit campaign, which does feel like a lifetime ago. And I remember quite a lot of the key levers when they were just trying to win the referendum, arguing that we could be like Switzerland or we could be like Norway and have a deal that was very close with the EU, but that wasn't actually being inside the EU. And that would be okay. And then the referendum happened and it seemed pretty much immediately that those voices faded out. The only form of Brexit that was acceptable was effectively cutting all ties with the EU and pretending that Europe didn't exist. But there was a time when this was seen as a legitimate, sensible, even desirable course of action. Mm -hmm. Freddie, what do you think it says about... Rishi Sunak that as somebody who was one of the original leavers, we've had a kind of Remainer Prime Minister and Theresa May, and then we had Boris Johnson, and then we briefly had Liz Truss, who voted Remain, and now we've got Rishi Sunak. But what does it say about him that he has felt the need to come out and deny this so strongly?
3: Well, I don't think it would happen anyway. We're so far away from rearranging our agreement with the EU. I mean, as Rachel said, the Swiss-EU deal is built around 120 bilateral agreements that have been created over many, many years. I mean, also the EU don't actually like that deal. They keep trying to get the Swiss to try and collectivise it into a single agreement. So it's very far from what they want at the moment. So we're not going to get it. In terms of what it says about Rishi Sunak, I think, yeah, I mean, Rachel's right. He is beholden to his party in many ways. You see that in votes in the House of Commons. You see that in the way that he speaks. It's, It's a constant theme of his premiership and it shapes what he can do.
4: Well, it was also one of the options that was explored by Theresa May. And then just the opposition towards her Brexit position, every time she put out a new Brexit position, got harder, you know, and then until we ended up with just a very, very hard Brexit. And now there's this group within the Conservative Party that just will not relent on anything that smells of being more pro-EU than the current position. Yeah, I mean, we also have to think about what we'd have to achieve or
3: change before that would happen, any changes at all. You'd have to solve the Northern Ireland Protocol at the moment. And we've had some good signs from the EU. Sefkovic has welcomed the resumption of talks the first time since February. James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, has also said some positive things, but that's all we've got so far. I mean, one EU source said to me on Tuesday that we've been here before, they said. So they weren't very hopeful. So we're a long way away. There are many issues to deal with. Migrant Crisis in the channel being one, and trying to get another deal with the French to to resolve that. So the more important thing here is simply that Brexit is back, as you said, Rachel, because we now have a greater understanding of the economic impact of Brexit. Of course, it was going to take four or five years to you know get the OBR reports, get the figures on trade. So we're there now, and hence, hence we're talking about it again.
4: There's something to be said for public opinion. You know, it's like there's almost sixty yeah. percent now that think Brexit's a mistake. So that puts pressure on. Any party leader that's thinking about trying to win the next election, they're trying to sort of guide their party more towards where they think the public is, I
1: guess.
2: I was going to mention that poll because one of the things that has happened since the Theresa May Brexit wars is that we had an election and all of the Remainer, moderate Conservative MPs, basically stood down and we got an influx of 2019 MPs who were very Brexit-y. So that's one thing that's happened and changed. But the other thing is that public sentiment has changed as the economic consequences have become more clear. And the government is trying really hard to say it's nothing to do with Brexit, it's all COVID or it's all the war in Ukraine when pretty much all the evidence shows that it is those things, those things do matter. But it is also very much Brexit, both in terms of labour shortages, and in terms of reduced trade and increased red tape and all the things that the experts that we weren't meant to listen to said might happen. And there are even, you know, some prominent levers who have come out and said, this is not the Brexit that I thought I voted for or that I expected. And yet, the Conservative government isn't going to acknowledge that at all for all kinds of reasons. But actually, Labour isn't really going after it either. And we've had two pieces on the New Statesman website this week. One of them, Martin Fletcher, one of our columnists, saying Labour should really go for this. It's a massive Tory mistake. It was a Tory referendum. It was a Tory hard Brexit. They should really be making the most of this. And the other one, Andrew Marwell political editor saying actually Labour's right to take a step back and, and play this quite quite cautiously. And that's what's great about the new statesman. Lots of debate, lots of points of view. What do you think of those two ways of, of looking at it?
4: I guess Labour's current position seems to talk more about the the workforce. And I think is trying to point to like a number of problems in that area, one of them being that we're getting a lot of people who are retiring and are not staying to sort of train a new load of workers who's so trying to say we should also be trying to build our workforce where it is. If you're Keir Starmer and you're thinking about it, you think back to the 2019 election. There are just no, there are no clear winners. Whenever you take a very strong position on Brexit, one way or the other. So I guess he's just trying to graduate a position that comes down the middle and talking about the problems in terms that people understand. There are just no winners, are there, when it comes to it? You know, if you, if, because of the whole, the vote was split, split 50-50... No one ever wants to be told that they're wrong when they're voted a certain way. So you've got to try and meet people where they are. And I think that's what he's trying to do at the moment.
3: Yeah, I thought Andrew's piece was interesting. He made the point that tactically it's wise for Labour not to constantly talk about Brexit because obviously they don't want to isolate Brexit voters. And then he also made the other point that strategically, if Labour do want to have a closer relationship with Europe, then they should start talking about it now. So he was trying to make a distinction about the benefit in the short term versus the long term, which I'm sure you won't mind me saying, but I, I sort of disagree with that. If they did want to join the EU, I don't think discussing or advocating for that now will encourage that. I mean, as you said, Rachel, the polls are already showing people are coming around to that position. I mean, the evidence is speaking for itself. And I don't know whether, you know, having politicians advocating for trade agreements or whatever it might be would would help that cause.
4: Yeah, I guess you'd want to be seen to be the politician responding to a change in public opinion rather than trying to force it, particularly on this issue. In any case, I think it's a very difficult thing to actually try and lead on effectively without annoying half of the electorate.
2: <laughs> but it's, it's causing headaches for the Conservatives too. This is not just Labour's dilemma, which sort of brings us on to another big political story this week, which is also deja vu in that Salah is under fire over immigration and britain's policy when it comes to asylum seekers now she's interesting because even though it's a cabinet that is full of leavers and people who have said how committed they are to to brexit she is pretty much the only high profile one who has really strong brexity vibes and we've talked before about how the reason she's in the cabinet in the first place is because rishi sunak needed to basically give that faction of the party something big in order to have them back him and not Boris Johnson. But she was up in a select committee hearing this week and she was asked some very in-depth questions about exactly what the process is if you want to seek asylum in the UK. She's asked by a a conservative MP, Tim Loughton, who sort of got her step by step into a a trap, essentially, pointing out that if you were a 16-year-old from a war-torn African nation that isn't one of the ones specifically on the list, like Afghanistan or or, or Ukraine, and you were orphaned, but you had a, a sibling who was in the UK legally there is no way for you to claim asylum outside of the uk so your only way to claim asylum which you are entitled to is to make an illegal crossing enter the country illegally and then end up in a migrant processing facility and then you can make an asylum claim there so kind of pointing out the cruelty of our immigration system in that we force people into illegal routes because we don't have safe and legal ones now we 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 know all this we've we've done articles on this. We've talked about this on the podcast before. What I found was interesting about that was she walked straight into that trap, seemingly not realising where it was going and didn't have an answer. And that seemed quite unimpressive from somebody who holds one of the four great offices of state. I'm not sure if if you two agree with me on that.
3: Yeah, I think it was a very tricky select committee for the Home Secretary. Uh, It happened a few times where she couldn't actually answer the question and had to defer to her Mm -hmm. officials. So it was very tough. And I think this is Becoming a recurring problem for the government. I mean, as you said, Rachel, we've discussed before that Sunak needs her in the cabinet to shore up his support on the right of the party. I mean, is in the future is he going to move her perhaps in a reshuffle? I'm not sure. Then you've got even more disgruntled ministers, former ministers on the back benches, and he's already having problems getting bills through Parliament. So it's a very tricky situation. And I, I sort of made the point in today's morning call that she's going to be there for a while for those reasons. But there's recurring problems um, and. On immigration specifically, they're, they're getting a really bad reputation now. Around 82% of people think that they aren't handling immigration well. I mean, that's people who think, oh, you need to treat migrants better. The system's poorly run. It's also people who want the numbers reduced. So they're, they're getting a really bad reputation. Brahman is part of that. Uh, the policy is part of that. So it, it's going badly, yeah.
4: of well Bravman Swell of Bravman. But I think just looking more broadly at how ministers are being held to account right now, that there are so many other different problems. I was out of the office yesterday on a on a trip with the bits that I saw. She was kind of also had her feet held to the fire on stuff like delays to people getting their passports. It's like now it's still at ten weeks, right? And I just think you you lose credit with the public, and the public more quickly lose patience with you if you're making a mess of everything at once. You could apply that same sort of logic to you know, how Jeremy Hunt's going to handle the economy, but because so many other things are falling apart, he's just, people are going to have no patience with him very early doors. But as to whether she'll survive, I, I think Freddie's right. I think it's just too difficult for, for Sunak to remove her. But then the other side of that is that why would you put one of your allies in an office that is just is just so beset with problems? I mean, like the the home office is completely toxic. The small boat situation is... There are no there are no solutions really that are gonna meet the, the challenge that they, they've set themselves. So I just yeah, I I, I think she'll survive for as long as, as long as she wants to, really.
2: It's a bit of a poison chalice at any time being Home Secretary just because of how dysfunctional the Home Office is and has been over successive governments, including like Labour ones as well. And you've got lots of people sort of saying that it's trying to do too much and that having immigration and policing and terrorism and counterterrorism and passports and all, it's just too much for anyone to do. On the passports delays, like they are still really bad. I would just remind listeners that we sent off passport applications for twins. One of them took four weeks, one of them took over 15 with multiple calls to basically everyone and we had to get a local MP involved because of how broken the system is. And that's the kind of thing... I know, I know. Thank you, Mike Freer. But the passport office is one of those things, it's one of those areas where ordinary people interact with the government, driving licenses are another one, obviously benefits and, and welfare. And when there's this feeling that all of the areas of government that actually are there to to help you, yes, before we even get onto the NHS, all of those things are, are falling apart on multiple fronts. It makes it very difficult, I think, for the government to do anything at all, because all of its political capital is being spent on on fighting fires on all of those multiple fronts.
4: When, you, when, when the economy's in the, in the state that it is, you're going to have these problems in every department because they're not spending money on solving any of the problems. It'll be like this, I think, for until they run up to the election.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the key points we discussed after the autumn statement that they're going to increase funding for the NHS and for education as a sort of, you know, because they wanted to prioritise those areas before the general election. But even then, I mean, the service itself is not going to improve dramatically if you, if you just give it more money because they're at such a low point already, I mean... And that's going to be people's experience of public services. So, yeah, I I don't think it's going to be an easy two years for the government in terms of delivering public services.
0: Hi, it's Anoush
2: here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back.
3: If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis, of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description.
0: And
2: now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Oh, excellent timing, guys. (laughs) For You Ask Us today, we have been asked, should England have boycotted a World Cup? And more generally, are our politicians responding to the controversies in the right way? Now, I should say straight off that I am not the right person to answer this because I have no interest in football whatsoever. So <laughs> I think that the whole thing is a, a bit a bit mad um, and a bit bizarre. And of course we should have boycotted it because who likes football anyway? But I realise this is a niche opinion and that other people might
4: feel differently. Should we have boycotted it? I think there was a time when the decision was made by FIFA a number of years ago when you could have mounted a load of opposition to that decision and got them to change it. That time has passed. So nobody expected it to be quite as oppressive as, as it's been while players were there, you know, like not being able to wear the One Love armband. I don't know if people were expecting that kind of treatment. When they got there, I think they expected, you know, that the country was, would kind of be a bit more liberal considering how much their economy is benefiting from being able to host host the World Cup in Qatar and what have you. I can understand some of the politicians' like response to some of the rows this week. I think Number 10 said on Monday that they were frustrated by FIFA's decision that players couldn't couldn't wear the armbands. And they said they were monitoring the situation later in the week when it came to, like, the treatment of LGBT fans and what have you. But we also get a, a, an awful lot of gas from Qatar <laughs> um, amidst the, the Ukraine war, so they kind of have to play it quite, quite carefully, I guess, which is, you know, that's hard to stomach, but that's a political reality for Downing Street. I asked... David Lammy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, this question on Tuesday when I saw him, and he was equally as careful in in what he said. And he said, I think he said something like, "I believe in the, you know the politics of engagement rather than shutting out the situation entirely." Personally, my own personal views, I, I hate the fact that it's there. The human rights record is abhorrent, and, and we don't seem to be getting anything from our engagement with 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 Qatar. They're, they're not relenting on anything really.
2: I mean that's that's partly the point, isn't it? And that a lot of the people who were saying at various points over the last decade, no, we should engage. There's no point in boycotting. Let's go and let's use the tournament as an opportunity <clears throat> to hold them to account and to highlight on the world stage all these human rights abuses, all of these issues for LGBT people and, and women. Let's use it as an opportunity to have this conversation it does feel that that conversation isn't really happening or it happened and then they started playing football and England won 6-2, I don't even know. I <laughs> They won their first match against Iran and that conversation just stopped and now it's all football, football, football. So that argument just feels quite weak. But again, I'm coming at this from the point of view of somebody who wouldn't have been watching it anyway. So like, is there a case that actually we're talking about Qatar's human rights record in a way that we probably wouldn't have been. I mean, there are lots of countries that have terrible records on human rights and we don't talk about them in the headlines every day, which we have been at least with Qatar while the world cup has, has been there for what do you think?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I think, We can make a distinction between how much we've been talking about it, because you're right, I think we have actually been talking about Qatar more. I don't think everyone would have been talking about the treatment of migrant workers or treatment of LGBTQ people in Qatar if it weren't there. But that doesn't mean it's going to affect change. So I think you have to make that distinction. We've seen World Cups and Olympics go to other places around the world. You've got to remember it was in Russia in 2018. We had the Olympics in Beijing in 2012. These tournaments don't necessarily bring about change, but yeah, they can highlight something in the discourse. It's just that we can't kid ourselves that because there's a headline and because someone wears an armband or they don't wear an armband, suddenly laws change and politics change in different countries.
4: I think the difference with, with the World Cup, in Britain in particular, is it's our national sport. And that's, that's why it has such emotional resonance for us because it says something about who we are. Oh. And I think that's why people feel as strongly about it as they do. I think that's probably why I feel as strongly about it as I as I do because it really means something to this country. And and you know but there there have been some protests. I mean the German the German team kind of had this this protest where they covered their mouths. I think it was at, at, um, a game yesterday. So I wonder if you know I, I would certainly like to see our players do something like that to kind of just express how people are feeling. About
3: yeah, and they're they're in a tricky position the players because over the past five or six years or so you have seen the growth of more activist value-based football and they've put themselves out there and proclaimed their own values in yeah. in good causes in the UK and that's been good for them it's been also been quite easy relatively because it's been great for their PR it's increased their Twitter following you know this let's be realistic about it there's a business case as well for being activists in terms of whatever political causes in the UK and what we've seen in Qatar is as soon as there's an actual cost to that, they don't stand up. So I think it's been very tricky for their public reputations as well, partly because they just set themselves up to something that they weren't able to fulfill.
4: I think that's absolutely right. And it's kind of like they've they've got the good end of 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 wading in on situations but then didn't want to didn't want to stick with their values when it got difficult. And I think that's part of yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's part of why people are so frustrated with them.
2: We should probably also mention Iran and the the Iranian players who before Their first match, which was our first match, refused to sing the national anthem, not in protest of what's going on in Qatar, but in solidarity with the protests that are going on in Iran, which are seeing hundreds of people arrested and harassed by police and with the threat even of of execution. So we did have a very strong statement from the Iranian team. I think a lot of people sort of looked at that in contrast to the the England team going, yeah, but if we wear an armband, we might get a yellow card and just felt that was quite weak in comparison. Although they are in a difficult position because they've got FIFA telling them what to do. And it's, it's not necessarily the individual players who are fully in control of, of those decisions, which I, I kind of do sympathise with as well, looking way further ahead, assuming that we do well in this. What what do you think it would mean if, if we did get to the final or if we did win and that our our first World Cup win for our, for our men's team in however many decades was, was this particularly controversial one?
4: I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, that you can't blame individual players. I think that's right. You know, it wasn't like it was Gareth Southgate's decision. It wasn't like it was, you know, Harry Kane's decision to be subject to a yellow card if they wore an armband. And I guess the, the sort of flip side to it, if you're being kind to them, is that they've probably trained for something like this all of their lives and they'll be feeling like they let the country down if they kind of rushed onto the pitch and their campaign kind of was just ruined because of the, the penalties that they were subject to. I, I I can't even think about whether we'll get to the final because you, know, you, you kind of never <laughs> want to think in too much. I, I think if they do get head to the final, I think it, you know it's not sustainable for them to remain silent because I think if the if the wins to really mean something to people, if we're going to bring home a trophy, it would have to they would have to express this feeling I think to people at home to kind of to show that they'd responded and show that the the contest and everything we said about you know going there and telling Qatar what we think about their human rights record. I think they'd have to find a way to put that on the table as well.
2: Just finally, on the cost of it, we do have a, a chart of the day up this week showing the the cost of this particular World Cup in relation to previous ones and also, obviously, its environmental impact, which we haven't talked about much today, but is a, a massive factor in holding a, a sports tournament of this size in the desert, essentially, where the stadiums need to be air-conditioned because the climate just isn't designed for that and i think it's very important that we keep up the focus on human rights and the situation for migrant workers but we should also be aware of the environmental cost of it as well because that's a huge factor i guess i hope that however well we do and obviously i'm cheering england on i don't hate football that much but however well we we do we do keep those um those issues in mind following yeah i mean i I think
3: i mean this whole discussion just underlines the fact that if they did do well it would be tarnished by all those problems you just outlined Rachel so that's just the nature of what's happening and yeah so it just makes it less enjoyable for everyone I think.
2: You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Rachel Cunliffe and my colleagues Rachel Wearmouth and Freddie Hayward. We're produced by Mae Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free, or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Oh my
3: gosh! I'm adopting a puppy right now, but I realize what's at home.